Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, Work Out Your Faith. We are wrapping up our time in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be looking at Philadelphia. Not the city, but the term that is used in today's passage. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Philadelphia. as we're beginning to wrap up our study through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13. We're going to be speaking this morning on Philadelphia. Not the city so much, but the concept of brotherly love. Philadelphia itself is, is called the city of brotherly love. We think of Philadelphia. Uh, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. Maybe not so much where its origin came from. Uh, William Penn, many years ago, back in 1682, envisioned a city, uh, a region where you could live and you could worship God freely. You could worship God peacefully. That there would be this brotherly love that would surround this area of tolerance and, uh, and Christian brotherly love amongst one another. This also happens to be Jesus' vision for the church this morning. Uh, John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed for us many years ago, remember when he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for all of those who would be his disciples later, his prayer was that we would all be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so God's intention for us as a church is that we would exhibit brotherly love. If there's any one place in the world you should be able to go and see brotherly love lived out, it's in the context of a local church. Well, Hebrews chapter 13, as we begin, we, we, we look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1, and what I want you to understand as we're looking at Hebrews 13 is that in the original Bible as God wrote it, there were no chapter and verse divisions. You do know that, right? There, were, there weren't original, cha- these chapter and verse divisions that we have were not original to the Bible. They were added later, and it's not a bad thing. It just helps us to identify where to go more quickly. But what it can do for us sometimes is give us the impression that it's no longer talking about something when it should be attached to it. And I believe that as we look at these admonitions from Hebrews chapter 13 in verses 1 through 6, that they should be a, a part of a greater conversation that's taking place. As we look back at Hebrews 12, 28, The last thing we heard here is let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I believe that what we see here are examples of acceptable worship. And we're going to see that as we worship God, it's going to also lead us to this concept of Philadelphia, that that we love one another as well that you can't truly love God without loving your neighbor. And so these are expressions of our worship for God. If we truly worship God, if we want to love God, we will love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, in fact, a true worship of God always leads to a love of other people. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40, these are very familiar verses to us. It says, a man approached Jesus one day, a scribe, and he says, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? So he's only asking about one commandment. I think what's really interesting to note here, the scribe asked for one commandment, but what does Jesus give him? Two. Because you don't get one without the other. He says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus gives him two. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. 
You don't get to love God a little bit. You don't get to add God to your life. If you truly love God, if you understand who God is, he consumes all that is your life. And that's the only way to love God. You love him fully or you don't love him at all. But beyond that, he said a second is like it, okay? Like it, meaning it, is, it goes along with, it's a companion to, it's corresponding to, equal to. You can't have the one without the other. What is this companion commandment that, you, that Jesus couldn't give the first without the second? He says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You say you obey God, you say you follow the Old Testament, fantastic. Every one of those verses can fit under one of these two commandments. It's either an expression of loving God fully, or it's an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself. You'll even look at the 10 commandments, what is it? Love God fully, and what's the second half of the 10 commandments? Love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law and the prophets is built upon these two principles, and you can't have one without the other. We don't get to say, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I really hate this guy over here. I love God, but I hate the people. And sometimes you'll even hear preachers joke, you know, I love the ministry if it weren't for the people. Friends, that's just depressing. That's sad, yeah, we're gonna hurt each other sometimes, but friends, we don't get to love God without loving people. The two go hand in hand. If one is the engine, if loving God is the engine of the train, the caboose is loving people. We don't get to pick and choose to love God without people. In fact, uh, uh, 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21 says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? He is a liar. Those are hard words. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's the same idea that Jesus was talking about here. If you're gonna say you love God fully and supremely and completely, you must phileo your brother. You must fully love him as a brother or sister in Christ. And so what we're gonna see here is a number of expressions of brotherly love. And then at the end here, I believe it's going to appeal to our loving God more than things. And so we're going to see expressions of love your neighbor and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength within the context of these admonitions. And when we look at these admonitions initially, you're gonna look at that, and and go ahead, scan down, chapter 13, verses one through six. As you read through these, it almost strikes you like a mother talking to you right before you go to college. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're about to get in your car, you're about to leave, and she's wanting to make sure that you're taken care of. And so she's giving you all these little kind of encouragements out the door. Did, did you pack your socks? Did you, did you get this? Did you, did you remember your books? Did you get your homework? Uh, make sure you drive under the speed limit. Don't be in a hurry. Don't eat while driving. And she just gives you all these random, uh, seemingly unassorted, unrelated admonitions, but they're rooted out of her love for you. And so when we look at these here, we're gonna see a list of commandments that just seem to be kind of a rapid fire series of commands that appear initially unrelated, but they are motivated by love, to love our neighbor as ourself and to love God with all our heart. So we're gonna look, number one, at love those that you do not know, okay? He talks about let brotherly love continue in verse one, okay? That we're there, we are to be exhibiting this brotherly love. By the way, this word brotherly love, 
It is the word Philadelphia. It's not how it's pronounced in the Greek, you know, uh, Philadelphia. But uh, this is brotherly love. It's, this, it's a familial love. It's the love that you show one another. It's, a, it's this, this friendly love that you have with one another. And we're commanded, he says, let brotherly love continue. It's not enough just to show it one time and be done with it. We've got to continue in this love. And as we continue in brotherly love, it's going to show itself in certain ways. Uh, Specifically, verse 2, what is one way that we show brotherly love? We love people that we don't know. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Okay, hospitality, this is the command here. To show brotherly love means that in in some aspects we show hospitality. Hospitality is an interesting word. It means a lover of strangers. We see our our, our word for brotherly love in it, phileo, okay, it begins with phileo, okay? And the other word, xenos, you hear the word xenophobia, maybe people who are uh, afraid of or dislike people who aren't like you, people from other nations, that's xenophobia. So to phileo xenos means you love people even though they're nothing like you. They don't look like you, they don't smell like you, they don't act like you, they don't have your money, they don't have your, your, your classy sense of dressing, they, they're not like you, but you love them anyway. That is hospitality. You don't have to know who they are and you still care about them. Now, out in the world, we don't see a lot of Philadelphia. We see a lot of, I love people that are like me. But in the church, when we come into the church, no matter who you are, no matter what background you are, no matter what clothing you're wearing, no matter what socioeconomic standards you are, no matter what political party you are, you should love your neighbor. We are commanded to show hospitality. Yet, when we become a believer, you confess Jesus Christ your Lord, you become a believer, do we automatically show hospitality? No, that's why it's commanded here. If it was automatic, it wouldn't be in the Bible. It has to, we have to be commanded to love outside of what's familiar and comfortable to us. Because, let's face it, on a Sunday morning, after a Sunday morning service, who do you beeline to? You beeline typically to your buddies. That's, that's human nature. We want to hang out with people that are similar to us, people that we already have a relationship with. I know them, and they know me, and it's fun to hang out, and I want to talk about the game. I want to talk about their life, and I just want to be with people I know, people that are similar to me. But this would fall into the category of loving those that love you. You already know they care about you. So sure, it's fun to hang around them. Hospitality is not that you're friendly to people you know. Hospitality, biblically, is you're friendly to people you don't know. Because when we only love those that love us, what did Jesus say? When you love those that love you, what benefit is that to you for even sinners? People who are lost, don't know Jesus, going to hell, unconverted. He says even sinners love those who love them. When it's somebody you already know, you have a relationship and you love them and you you know they care about you and you wanna spend time with them, there's nothing divine about that love. That's how everybody else does that. But Christians, when you come into a church and you see people who want to get into the lives of people they don't know, to get to know people they've never met, to get to know people who are unlike them, maybe they're a different race, a different culture, uh, a different economic status, a different age than you. When we can love those people, love those who are strange to us, different from us, friends, that's when we're exhibiting divine love. And our text commands this of us, to show hospitality. You know, it's one of my greatest prayers, is honestly Jesus' prayer for the church, that we would all be one. That you take this melting pot of people from all around the world and you bring them in here, you know, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male, female, 
this race, that race, and you, you get all these people into one context, but we can love each other like we're a singular family. That's Jesus' prayer for the church. It's my desire for the church. Because isn't that what we're to get to? In Galatians 3.28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Jesus' prayer for us, that we would all be one, that we would stop dividing amongst ourselves according to party lines, according to uh, demographics and age and race and, and money, but that we would be one in Christ when we come here. Now, how as a church do we do we most readily show hospitality, where we show a love for strangers, a love for people that aren't like us. It begins when people walk through that door and we don't know who they are. Now, maybe they're a first-time visitor. Maybe it's somebody who's been here for 15 years and somehow you still don't know their name. (laughs) And that happens. You know, we just, we run in different circles. Can I encourage you to be a lover of strangers, to make it a purpose in your heart and life to get to know as many names as possible, to introduce yourself specifically, God, lead me today to one person I don't know yet, somebody I don't know their name, then I need to talk to them. And when we come to church, friends, that we come to church, we don't just immediately sit down and wait for someone to come to me. Well, I sure hope somebody's gonna be friendly to me. I want this to be a friendly church. You know how we become a friendly church? You. You. That's how we become a friendly church, is you choose to be the friendly person. And if we all choose to be that person, we're a friendly church. And you go and you meet people you don't know. After church, try to make it your goal never to just go straight to your friends. Find one person. I'm not saying five. You don't have to be a social butterfly. Even introverted people can do this. Find one person. And just do, do what I do. Friends, I'm gonna tell you what I do on Sunday mornings. I do a visual scan whenever I'm, whenever I'm done in the receiving line there and I come back in the church and I am scanning. I'm looking for people who are alone, people who aren't talking to anybody. I'm looking for people who I know are hurting and going through a hard time. I'm looking for visitors that have never been here before. And so if you're my friend already, friends, it doesn't mean I don't care about you when I don't immediately talk to you. It means that I've already got a relationship with you, but there are some here who have a relationship with nobody. I wanna find out who those people are. It's not enough for one person to do that, friends. When we can do that as a church, guess what? Somebody's looking for you one day. And when you're coming to church hurting, they're looking for you. This is how we become a lover of strangers. We become willing when we come to church, church isn't about me. I come to church and I want to, I want to bless and meet the needs of other people. I want to put myself in the shoes of a first-time visitor and say, what would it be like to be in a church like this? Not knowing anybody. And I'm going to make them feel like family. You know. So talk to them. Uh, you want to be crazy? You want extra credit? Invite them out to lunch with you. I mean, who does that? Invites a complete stranger out to lunch with you. If you want to blow their mind, pay for their meal. I mean, just what is that? Who does that kind of a thing? God's children do that. It's called hospitality. We love one another. And our text reminds us that when we do this, we will never know fully the impact of our love. What does it say? This is the part that everybody always likes to get excited about. For thereby, when we show hospitality, what sometimes do we do? Some have entertained angels unawares. Does that ever happen? Does God ever send angels amongst us? Not that we're seeking for them, not that we worship them, we don't focus on them. They are just servants of God like we are. But does sometimes God do that? I mean, we look in the Old Testament, you got Abraham, you know, he's hanging out in his tent, you got a few guys that show up. His immediate knee-jerk response without even knowing who these people are is, I need to feed these guys. 
I need to show hospitality. I don't know who they are, but I'm gonna show them love anyway because it's who God created me to be as people of God. And who are these people actually? Angels. Or you have Lot. He's living in Sodom, San Francisco, okay? He's living in Sodom and uh, he's looking around and he sees it's starting to become nighttime and he knows there's no room in the Ramada, you know, there's no room at the Motel 8 and it's not safe to hang out on the streets of Sodom. And so what does he do? He invites these homeless guys, if you will, these guys without shelter into his home and protects them with his life. That's, uh, that's hospitality. But who are these people actually? They were angels. And so are you telling me that at times, even today, there may be people that I am showing love and kindness to, and it's actually some angelic messenger, it's some kind of thing where God is observing how I treat my fellow man and how I love one another? That's exactly what this text is saying. That God is uniquely observant to how we treat other people. God is not blind to how we treat people. God is observing how we treat people. He gives us opportunities to show love. And sometimes we come through and we show hospitality and other times we, we just pass them by, okay? Number two, we love those who are hurting. This is another outflow of Philadelphia, okay? Loving our neighbor, loving people like a brother. He says, remember those, verse three, who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. He's talking about loving those in prison. Now, this isn't so much an admonition to start prison ministry, okay? That's a good thing to do. Prison ministry is a fantastic ministry. But this isn't so much that because he's actually talking about those who are in prison and those who are mistreated, but what do they also belong to? They are in the body. We're talking about believers. Now, why are believers in jail? <laughs> Should a believer ever be in jail? Uh, it depends. Uh, you've got to remember the context back then. During the writing of the book of Hebrews, uh, there was a really wicked emperor named Domitian who was on the throne at the time. He was a wicked guy who slew his own brother. He killed multiple senators. And every time there was some kind of natural disaster, he would pin it on the Christians and persecute and kill Christians. And so it was not uncommon that if you were a faithful brother or sister in Christ, that you might face genuine prison time for that. Or you might be mistreated, you might be beaten. And he's saying that there are people within the lo your local church, he says they are in your body. They're members of Unity Baptist Church and they might be in prison for their faith. They might have just been beaten for their faith. And he says, what are we supposed to do with them? He says, remember them, call to mind, don't forget them. Don't separate yourself from them, but show brotherly love. By God's grace, this could be you someday. Why would somebody want to separate from a fellow brother and sister in Christ who's in prison or, or being mistreated by the government or others? There's a temptation because the thought is this. If you knew that America started imprisoning Christians for believing what they believe and one of your brothers went to prison, would you be a little scared to visit them in prison? You would, why? Because I might get associated with them and then their pain might become my pain. Isn't that, a, isn't that a legitimate fear of ours? If I associate myself with these Christians who are in prison, their pain might become my pain. And I'm, I'm a little scared about that pain. And so brotherly love manifests itself by remembering, calling to mind, visiting those who are in prison, those who have been mistreated because they're part of your body. It's only by the grace of God you're not there. 
I was talking just, just this last week with a fellow who's running uh, the CARES neighborhood and all that kind of stuff, these, these mercy ministries that take place within our city. He says the one thing they do that keep themselves humble as they are serving these people who are suffering in life, he says, is that most of us are only two or three decisions away from being exactly where they are. He's putting, you put yourself in their shoes. And so brotherly love, always ask myself the question, when somebody is hurting God, do you want me to be a part of that answer? When somebody's hurting God, help me to understand and to feel what they're feeling. Christianity, we don't backpedal and back away from human suffering. What do we do? We pull in close to it because by the grace of God, that could be me. In fact, when we remember those who are in prison as though being in prison with them, does God receive that as an act of worship? All of these, I believe, are acts of worship. Remember Hebrews 12, 28, talking about, you know, we ought to serve God with acceptable worship, with reverence and awe. Therefore, do these things to love one another. I believe it worships God when we meet the physical needs of other people who are suffering around us. And I don't just say that as my opinion. I'm gonna read you some scripture, of course. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking about the final judgment of man, and he's speaking to those who are rewarded for their, if you will, their good deeds, for the ways that they worship God. And listen to what he says. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and yet you welcomed me. Okay, this is hospitality. A stranger, and yet you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the whole time, the believers who are listening to this are kind of puzzled, and so they ask the question. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? What does your Bible say? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How we treat man, God takes it personally, doesn't he? When we show love to somebody, God sees that as loving God himself. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is also to do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't get to say I love God, but not show love to your neighbor. They have to go hand in hand. And when we show kindness, Jesus is saying, when we show kindness to people, he says, the least of these, my brethren, the least of these are the people in your life that you help that can do nothing to improve your social standing. The people that society maybe doesn't think highly of. The people that society ignores and forgets about. When you show love and kindness and you take care of the physical needs of people who are suffering and hurting and they're not gonna improve your social standing, they're not going to improve your financial status. You're never going to get a job because of you know, their recommendation. That's the least of these. You're doing it just because you love Jesus. Jesus says, when you love the least of these like this, you have loved me personally. And I'll tell you the other thing too. When we are disdainful of those people, when we reject those people, when we ignore those people, does God receive that personally? He does. Remember when God converted Saul, knocked him clean off his donkey? blinded him, that's when you get God's attention. And what did God say to Paul at the time going by Saul? What did God say to Saul after Saul had been killing Christians and imprisoning Christians and shutting down churches? He said, Saul, Saul, King James alert here, why persecutest thou me? Okay. When Saul hurt the Christians, who was he hurting? God. 
When we love people, how does God receive that? You loved me. And so how we treat man is a reflection of how we feel about God. When we treat man with love, it's a, it arises from a heart that loves God. And we can't have the one without the other. And so moving on here, uh, number three here, we see another manifestation of loving our neighbor. Loving your neighbor, by the way, begins at home. Your mate is still, if you will, your neighbor. And you want to love them exclusively. <clears throat> he says in verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for, because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So we're to hold the marriage and the marriage bed uh, in honor. When we honor God, it means we respect, we believe, and we follow what God has said. So when God says in Genesis 2.24, let a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and only one man and only one woman. Okay, that means we honor what God says about marriage. When uh, we read through in uh, Matthew 19, 6, where it says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We don't believe in just willy-nilly divorces, that we believe in a firm commitment that marriage is meant to last a lifetime, and we give every effort toward that. Okay, that's when we honor God. We honor what God says. It also means that when God says that intimacy is meant for marriage alone as a believer, we honor that. We, we don't just go outside of it. We don't see uh, physical intimacy as just something that belongs to me. It's primarily there for my pleasure and my enjoyment, my personal satisfaction and fulfillment. This is something that is given by God, which is a blessing. The Bible even calls it here that the marriage bed is undefiled and should remain so. And so we're not gonna, as a church, say that this is, a, this is some, some, some wicked, heinous thing that you don't talk about. This is something that the Bible says is a, a beautiful thing within the context of what God has given to us. You know, human intimacy is a lot, a lot of times, it's like, a, it's like a fireplace. Anybody have a fireplace in their home? We have one, we've never fired it up. Um, if you have a fireplace, in, a fire inside your fireplace, is that something you all wanna gather around? It's usually the central focus of your living room, isn't it? You go, you get the fire, you're roasting s'mores, you're hanging out with the family, you're warming up by the fire, you sit there and you listen to light music and let the stress and pressure of the day just kind of dwindle away as you listen to the crackling of the fire. Different scenario, also a fire in your home. You're in bed and you look across the way and there's a fire on your curtain and it is consuming the walls of your home. Are you excited about that fire? Are you saying, kids, wow, let's take advantage of this opportunity and get the marshmallows out. Let's, let's, let's take full opportunity of this to celebrate this as a family. No, and, but this is, what, this is what physical intimacy is. It's a fire that when in the right context, within the bricks and the surrounding and the boundaries that God gives it of the fireplace of the home, it's a beautiful thing. It's a thing that'll warm you. It will, it will feed you. It will encourage you. But if that fire is allowed without the boundaries of God, it will consume your home. It will terrify you. It will bring down everything that you hold dear. That's human intimacy physical intimacy. When we do it outside of God's boundaries, he says that it, it can be something that defiles the marriage bed, defiles a word that, that just means to stain or pollute something. That happens anytime we go outside of God's brick fireplace for physical intimacy. Whenever we go outside of that in any way, shape, or form, friends, there's a fire in our life, and it will consume us. 
and it defiles us. In fact, he specifically says here that God will judge a couple of kinds of people. First one is immoral. You'll recognize the Greek word pornos, immoral. Immorality is this blanket term. It describes any time that we view human physical intimacy as just primarily here for me, rather than something that's primarily to glorify God. In the beginning, what was human intimacy for? It brought a husband and wife together. They fulfilled God's command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And so human intimacy brought man and woman together, and it fulfilled the will of God. That is a proper view of intimacy. When we have an improper view of intimacy, we start getting selfish, going, this is here for me. I've got needs, I've got desires, they should be fulfilled, and I'm gonna find any way to fulfill that. You know, and that means that I'm not gonna wait for marriage. It means I'm gonna live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I know, I know what God says, but the world says this, and I think it sounds very attractive and very appealing, and so we light the curtains on fire to experience the brief joy of seeing a flame in our home right before it consumes all that we have. The other word he says is adulterous. This is somebody who is married, but they're going outside of marriage to fulfill themselves. You know, when I was a young man, I always thought, you know, as soon as I get married, you know, because everybody struggles against this. When you're young and you're dating, you want to be, you want to be pure before the Lord. And there's a, when you genuinely love somebody, there's a, a true and genuine struggle that you want to give yourself to them. And my thought as a young man is, as soon as I get married, I'm never gonna struggle with this ever again. That was a joke, okay? You get married, what do we marry? We marry another sinner, don't we? And we hurt each other. Sometimes we will withhold things from one another. Sometimes life and health get in the way. And then you can become even more frustrated as a married person than even you were as a single person before you opened up Pandora's box. And there is a legitimate temptation for those who are married to commit adultery in that they're going outside of their mate to try to fulfill these God-given desires. And these are God-given desires, but they have to be fulfilled in a God-given way. You gotta keep it in the brick fireplace of your home. But sometimes there's a temptation to go outside of that and say, you know what, I have a right doggone it, I have a right to be fulfilled. And, and biblically, you do. First Corinthians 7 says, let the husband render to the wife what is due her. It is due her. And it says, let the wife render to her husband what is due him. It is due you. You're right, it is due. But what if they don't fulfill, uh, fulfill, fulfill that and they follow through with what is due? Well, then I'm just gonna, she had it coming. I'm just gonna fulfill it any way I can. I'm gonna go outside of my marriage. I'm gonna join some kind of app you know, and, and swipe right and left and find somebody to fulfill that need? Or I'll tell you what's even easier. You know, an easier way to commit adultery is pornography. I know it's a word you don't even want to say in church. Um, but is that a legitimate thing? Do people in churches actually struggle with that? I'm gonna tell you right now, friends, I talk to men about that issue probably more than any other issue in the church. And I don't just mean young men, I mean older guys, old men, young men, and now it's affecting women. Did you realize, guys, that as Christianity uh, encounters pornography and we see it so publicly available to us, you, you realize, by the way, that pornography outsells uh, every other major network put together. Okay, and so with, it, with its abundant availability, you can get it right from the phone in your pocket. Uh, with that kind of availability, do you know that Christians are beginning to think that it's actually okay and victimless? The reason I say that is because I've talked to Christians in good churches who still think that it's a victimless sin. Is it truly victimless? No, because you're perpetuating an industry that hurts people. 
You are defrauding, that's a term the Bible uses, means you're not able now to give your wife what is due her, you're taking those energies that should be used for her and you're giving it to something else. And you're also wounding yourself, aren't you? Are you a, is it truly a victimless crime when you do that for yourself? You know, you're living in continual perpetual guilt, you're distancing yourself from God. And I would tell you this, that if you're living in continual habitual unrepentant sin of even pornography, friends, you're in danger of, am, am I even truly a believer? Now, I'm not saying somebody who struggled with pornography is unsaved. But what I'm saying is, if you have no compulsion against it, you have nothing, nothing fighting you, you're just giving yourself fully over to it, that's the indi indication of an unbelieving heart. Revelation 21.8 says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, and the sexually immoral, again, that's a blanket category of, of sexual sin. He says their portion, what they will earn in eternity is the lake of fire, which burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You say, yeah, but pornography isn't adultery, is it? Nobody wants to say amen to that. Nobody wants to say it is or isn't, but did Jesus ever speak to pornography being adulterous? Matthew chapter five, verse 28. Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, Lustful intent simply means when you see a woman, normally you should view her as like a mother or a sister, okay? It's someone that you can bless, someone that you can encourage, something you wanna support, you wanna help them. When a man looks at a woman with lustful intent, she doesn't even have to be unclothed. It just means that you look at her as an object for your own gratification. When we do that and we have lustful intent towards someone, it says this man has done what? He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is pornography a victimless sin? No, it's the sin of adultery. And friends, it's destroying homes left and right, and not just homes of unsaved people, homes in the church. And friends, so I'm just gonna tell you this. If you're struggling with this, it tends to be a sin that you need help to get out of. And there's nothing wrong. James 5 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Friends, I'm gonna encourage you today, if that's something you're struggling with, don't put it off. Don't put off a good marriage till later. Don't continue polluting your soul. Find somebody and be accountable to them. Get some help. The lie of Satan is cover your sins, but what does Proverbs say? He who covers his sins, sins shall not prosper. You're not gonna get better by covering it up and forgetting it. It's like covering a brain tumor with a Band-Aid. I do, however, want to just let you know, I do understand the, the suffering that a lot of people experience, not all of you. I'm married to a wonderful woman. I, I, I'm gonna brag on her a little bit. Uh, she is just a wonderful, selfless, giving servant of a woman to me. She, she has always been very kind and considerate of my needs, be they physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever. We don't all go home to that, I understand. I've had people in my counseling room talking to me just about the pains that they're experiencing and they want a good marriage and they're just, they're struggling and this is an area of their life where they're doing without. And they're just, there's just a longing in their heart, not just for a, a physical act, but for uh, that acceptance and that intimacy that comes from that. What do you do? When that's not there, what do you do? Well, let me ask you this, when you're thirsty, what do you do? Do you just get water from any source? You know, you get out into a boat, you, get, you, you launch out of this boat, it's sinking, so you get into this life raft. You're in a desperate situation in this life raft. What's the one thing from watching movies that we know we all don't do when you're in a life raft, adrift in the ocean? 
You don't drink the seawater. Now you want to, don't you? Because you are thirsty more than you've ever been thirsty before. You're parched, your skin is cracked and drying and wrinkling up, and you are legitimately afraid that you're gonna die. And then all of a sudden, in this state of extreme thirst, you wouldn't normally drink seawater, right? You don't go to the ocean and say, honey, grab me a cup of that seawater out there, would you? Put some ice in it, maybe a little umbrella. You don't do that with seawater normally, but if you're desperate enough, there's a temptation, isn't there? And so you're in that, sea, that, that raft and you're looking around, you're like, the one need I have is abundantly available everywhere I look. There's nothing but what I need right here. You know, and that's kind of what immorality and pornography is. There's tons of people who are willing to commit adultery with you right now. You can go to apps, you can go everywhere else, you can go to people at work, you can go down to the bar. And if you're not gonna go that route, you can just pull out your phone. And so that seawater is everywhere and it's finding a lot of us in a desperate situation. I haven't had any kind of intimate fulfillment, emotionally, physically, or otherwise, in a long, long, long time and I need something to get me by. And so we take a giant cup of that seawater around us. Now the problem with seawater, what makes it dangerous is you don't see the danger that's in it. What is seawater full of? Sodium, right? And that sodium, when it hits your bloodstream, you don't see it, you think, oh, oh, thank God, I'm so thirsty. What you don't realize is you have just invisibly ingested a lot of sodium, and your body's trying to maintain equilibrium, so it's going to suck all the water from all your different body parts and send it straight to the kidneys to try to flush out that sodium from your system. And you will dehydrate and die. But for, in many ways, friends, this is what the sin, uh, this is what immoral sin, immorality will do to us. There is a thirst and there's a natural God-given longing in our heart to have that kind of intimacy with another human being. But it has to be in the brick fireplace of our home. And we have to avoid the temptation of just dipping a giant cup of seawater to immediately slake our immediate present thirst. And we've got to trust that God will bring fresh water in due time. Number four here, we're going to see, love the Lord, not money. The longest exposition in this passage here is, isn't even just about how we love our fellow man. Let brotherly love continue, you know, show hospitality, you know, love your wife supremely and completely and exclusively. Uh, the longest exposition here is about covetousness. You say, well, what does covetousness have to do with how I love God? Good question. Hang on. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So how is contentment an act of worship to God? As believers, as we read the Bible, we recognize that we don't serve a wimpy God, we serve a great God. He is a God of great power and might, omniscience, omnipresence. This makes him sovereign. He is in control of all things. Is God sovereign over world affairs. He is. Remember, he called Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Is God sovereign over this nation and who we, who we raise up and who we don't elect as president? He is. Is God sovereign over my home? He is. God is sovereign over your home, and the money that you earn is a gift of God. James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, who doesn't change. So even our income is that blessing. It comes from God. So as we recognize the income that I have right now presently is a gift of God, our contentment with that is an act of worship to God because we recognize God has allotted to me this amount of money in life. 
Now that creates a little bit of a problem, especially for some of us, some of our, our young politicians. They, they believe that any kind of wealth at all is evil, capitalism is evil. Capitalism is not evil, in fact, it's a biblical concept. You work hard, you get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Read Ecclesiastes. What is, what is denounced in the Bible is the uncompassionate use of that wealth that we should voluntarily and willingly freely share that. What, and so having great money is not evil. Having great money is not wickedness. It's not, uh, wealth does not equal greed. Wealth does not equal greed. Uh, in fact, there are many godly people in the Bible that were wealthy, weren't there? Abraham had a lot of money. Lydia, seller of purple, okay, a lot of money. You know, you've got all your kings, and David and Solomon and others, and Boaz had a lot of money. A lot of times Christians who are wise with their money and work hard end up with a good deal of money because they're following God's principles. Having a lot of money doesn't make you wicked. And I would also say this, you're not in the clear from covetousness just because you're poor. Covetousness is not a state of your bank account, it's a state of your heart as to whether or not your life is free of the love of money. And by the way, it's the love of money, not the possession of it that is evil. 1 Timothy 6.10, it talks about the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And those who are pursuing it pierce themselves through with many a pain. Okay, it's that love of money. Um, poor people, can they be covetous still? Can you ever seen a covetous poor person? A lot of times poor people do covet because they've spent their money foolishly and now they desperately want more and more things. Uh, in fact, you know, you know, when you look at things like the lottery, do rich people tend to play the lottery? No, that's why they're rich. They don't waste their money on that. You're not winning anything by the lottery. You're not getting, you're not getting rich that way. Uh, you go down to Highway 60 and go to Sandy's, little casino, racetrack, off-site betting thing. Do you see a lot of rich people down there? They aren't, it's poor people. And why are they going to those places? Why are they playing the lottery? Why are they going to Sandy's? Why are they pulling down the handle of the slot machine? Why are they playing blackjack all night? Why? It's because they're coveting. They love money. Now, I've heard Christians try to justify, oh, gambling, I just, I spend whatever I spent on a, on a theater ticket or to go see a show. I'll spend $200 on a concert. So I just use that as entertainment and I never go beyond it, so it's not bad for me. Well, friends, consider this. When you spend $200 on a concert, what is it that's actually bringing you joy from that $200? It's the appreciation of beauty and art and music. These are godly traits, aren't they? When you spend $200 down at Sandy's, why are you enjoying that? Is it really fun to sit down in front of a box with a handle and just pull it and watch the pictures? Ching, ching, ching. Ah, that was cool, let's do that again. Tink, 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 that's really fun. What is it that makes that fun? What is it make, that makes it fun just playing this really dull, most boring card game in the universe is blackjack? Why would somebody wanna sit there and flip those cards all night? What makes it fun? Is it the card flipping? What makes gambling fun is this, it inflames your lust for money. It, it, it sets on fire your desire for coveting. That's what makes gambling fun. Friends, that's also what makes gambling wicked at heart because we are inflaming our desire for more than what God has given to us. Instead, God calls us to be wise with our resources. Now, how does a person become covetous? We want to avoid covetousness. How do we become covetous? Covetousness begins with a baseline understanding of I'm the most important person in my universe. And I therefore deserve a certain standard of living. I deserve more than what God has given to me. 
I'm not gonna be content with what God has. I recognize that all I have come from God, but God has kind of done me wrong here, and I deserve better. And then we begin to pursue things as an end in itself. And that pursuit of the money is what makes it wicked because we, the Bible very clearly states, doesn't it? We cannot pursue money as an end in itself and pursue God at the same time. You can make money. Go ahead, work 40 hours a week, earn all the money you can, be a multimillionaire. That's no problem. It's not the amount of money. It's the pursuit of it. That it is an end in itself. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or to be devoted to one and despise the other. And then what does he say? You cannot. It is impossible to serve God and money. Having money is not serving money. Serving money means you see it as an end in itself. You are pursuing it. And it's not just money. It's not just like we like to run our fingers through coins. <laughs> you don't like Scrooge. What do we love about money? You love what money can do for you. Isn't that why we like money? We like what money can do for us. With this money, I can now go out and buy a new 2024 Ford Mustang. I can go out and buy a better house. I can take a, a Disney cruise. That's why we like money, is because we like what it does for me. This is why often when we read about covetousness, the Bible associates it with idolatry. Did you realize that? Colossians 3.5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, that which ties and binds you to this kingdom, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, and look, what, what does he call covetousness? Which is idolatry. Now, how is me just wanting more things an idolatrous thing where I'm worshiping someone or something other than God? It's because of what money does for us. The reason we want money is because we would love to tithe it to ourselves. When we are covetousness, it is the worship of self. I want to live a better life. I deserve a higher income. If my friend has this, then why don't I have it? it I shouldn't have to live in a house this small. I shouldn't have to drive a car this old. I shouldn't have to drive, you know, wear clothes that are more than a year old. I deserve better than that. And so covetousness at its core is the worship of self, and the Bible relates it specifically to an idolatrous act that I love myself more than God. And so he tells us in our text here, be content with what you have. Being content doesn't mean that once I get to this standard of living, I'll finally be happy. Because you ever get there? Once you get there, I mean, when, you were, when I was a little kid, I used to think that a $30,000 a year job was a ton of money. You know, a buddy of mine graduated from Bible college. He went and got a youth pastor job, and he was getting paid a whopping sum of $26,000 a year. And I just thought, wow, if I ever had that, man, I'd be so content. I'd be so happy. Y'all making $26,000 a year, are you happy with what you got? I mean, you can't, you can't go out once a week to Burger King on that. And so contentment isn't setting a standard saying, once I reach this echelon of financial prosperity, I'll finally be a happy person, sit back and be happy with what God gave me. Contentment begins with being happy, he says, with what you have. What is in your bank account right now, with your income right now, with your standard of living right now, we all possess the ability to walk out of this place content, happy with what God has provided us. Is that possible? It is if we don't worship ourselves. 
You see, for a lot of us, we feel like I can't afford to be happy unless I have this standard of living. And we begin pursuing wealth as an end in itself to tithe to ourself. Or worse yet, we, we live beyond our means. Content also means we don't live beyond what God has provided. Content means that we look at what God has provided us and we choose to live underneath those means so that I can save for the future, so that I can live generously with other people, uh, so that I can give freely to the Lord, generously and cheerfully. Okay? That's when you know you're living under your means. You're content. How do you know if you're living beyond your means? There will be some evidences. First of all, you have a hard time even making regular bills. You can't make your house payment. You have, you're struggling to put food on the table. You're, we're, we're struggling because we're living beyond our means. Say, no, I need a house. But do you need a $400,000 house? You say, well, I need a car, but do you need a car that's brand new? Well, I need clothing, but do you need to keep buying as many clothes as you have? You see, even in our regular subsistence, a lot of times, we live beyond a standard than what God has already provided us. What's another symptom? Another symptom, friends, is that you're, you're carrying credit card debt from month to month. Now, I'm, I'm treading lightly here. I realize there's a lot of folks that do this. But can I tell you, there's no such thing as a person who's carrying credit card debt every month, who's bouncing credit from card to card to card, who isn't living covetously. Where does credit card debt come from? It comes from when we want to live a standard beyond what God has provided us. It comes from, arises from a heart that is not content. And we deserve to have a better vacation. I deserve to have more clothes. I deserve to have a nicer car. And we live a standard beyond what God has given to us. And then we find ourselves shackled to a lifestyle. And now I have to work crazy hours. I've got to take any giving I would give from God. And I've got to take any generosity I would show to others. Even my own future. I've got to borrow from my future. And I've got to pay down this lifestyle I've created. And we become, uh, the Bible even tells us, the borrower is the lender's slave. Okay, we become a slave to the lender. It's the reason the Bible says, oh, no man, anything but love. We Christians are not meant to live in that kind of bondage. Another indicator that you're living beyond your means, friends, is simply this. Does your giving to the Lord change much from month to month? 1 Corinthians 16, 2 talks about how he says, let each of you, okay, so everybody is to give. Let each of you give, uh, and it says on the first day of the week, according to as God has prospered you. And so it's a percentage. When I get more, I give God more. When I make less, I give God less. It's, according, it's a percentage according to my income. And when I give in that way, in a biblical way, my giving should look like this, unless, I don't know, you make like you're a starving artist and you make nothing and then all of a sudden you sell this huge painting or something. But for most of us, we get a regular income. So what should my giving to God look like? It should be a flat line. When my giving to God is like, eh, uh, you know, I'll give to God in this month, but not this month, this month, not this month. Friends, we're living covetously. I'm using the money that I should be given to the Lord and I'm using it simply to improve my own standard of living. And I say this with all compassion, friends, because I do understand there's a lot of temptation to live like everybody that's around us. But Jesus warns us not to live covetously. A lot of times we quote Philippians 4.19, and we love Philippians 4.19. What does it say? I mean, y'all have it tattooed on your arm. But my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And the way we apply that usually is I can go out and live however I want, and I just, Jesus is on the hook to pay off my bills every month. Is that what that verse means? 
Those of you who have taken uh, D group book two roots and you've studied Bible interpretation, what do you always do with the verse? You read it in context. Do you know what the context of Philippians 4.19 is? The context is Christian giving. Paul talks about them. He says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you have sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So as you give to further the Lord's work, then what is the promise of God? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so this isn't just a blanket thing that you spend all that you want. It's that God, as you give to God off the top, trust that the other 90% or whatever you give, God is gonna make it work. God's gonna help you learn to live within your means, within the means that he has given you. And to live within the means God has given to us means when we claim this promise, God will supply all of our needs, what it means is what you're making right now is what God has supplied for all your needs. And so we have to learn to live within those means. Sometimes for some of us it means making a budget. It means sometimes downsizing our lifestyle to honor God. Well, how, how low do we need to go? Sometimes, 1 Timothy 6, 8, what do we need to be content? Food and clothing. Anything we add to food and clothing, friend, is something that American culture has added to what I need to be content, not what God has placed here. And so Jesus warns us, take care, Luke 12, 15, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not about what you earn. Your life is not about your standard of living. It's not about what you own. It's not what you show off to your friends. It's not what you drove to church here today. That is not your life. Our life is the sum of our relationships and absolutely nothing more. And I can say that confidently because uh, First Peter tells us that everything we see here is gonna burn up. That which can be burned up is not what is life indeed. Life is the sum of your relationships and absolutely nothing more. Your relationship to God, first and foremost. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's your relationship to your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's your relationship with your wife and kids. And you know what's just terrifying to me? This is what life really is. It's about knowing God. It's about loving others. It sums up the entirety of the Bible. That is what life is. But how many of us, even as Christians, have been duped by the world to sacrifice what is truly life, my walk with God, my walk with my wife, my relationship with my kids and with my friends, and we've been duped by the world to sacrifice what is truly life for the things that are temporary and will disappear. And we wonder why we're depressed and why we're miserable. It's because we've lost sight of what life truly is. You know, every year at Christmas, we always watch that uh, Frank Capra's classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And in that movie, we see it portrayed, a life that is lived for relationships and a life that is lived for just money in an end of itself. Who lives for money as an end to itself? Old man Potter, the guy who never got his at the end of the movie. And old man Potter, he's the kind of guy, he's throwing guys out on Christmas Eve. Yeah, throw them out, evict. Because all that matters is my bottom line. And we see Potter and he's living sumptuously. He's sitting in that throne of his and he's got everything he could want. You know, he's got this, this guy who serves him, this servant who follows him everywhere, pushes him in the wheelchair. And Potter is just never enough. And he's living for money as an end in itself. He's not the hero of the story, by the way. We don't like Potter very much. In fact, it was said many years that Frank Capper would receive all kinds of letters at the end of that movie saying, what happened to Potter? We want to see that man get his because we don't value the person who values things over people. And then on the other side of that, you have a tale of another man, another household, the Bailey home. 
George Bailey's dad, he's running that old building loan because he just wants to help people. And yeah, he could make a lot more money, but he doesn't. He makes enough to get by. He's not poor, but he's, he's not living wealthy like Potter was, but he's doing well enough. But he's living for those relationships. And George Bailey's dad, even though there was stress in his life, there was peace and joy in his home. The kids are joking and playing and laughing. And there's just, there's this peace and joy there. Fast forward, you got George Bailey as a little kid. And you know, when you're a young person, you start, you have these big eyes for the world and you want to see and experience everything in the world. He's talking about traveling to all these wonderful far-flung places. And then eventually life hits him right in the face and right as he's going on his honeymoon, he realizes I've got to be responsible and look out for other people. And he does that the rest of his life. And does that pay off for George? He looks like he's gonna lose everything and that's what we feel like as Christians. I'm not living the lifestyle all my buddies are. I feel like I'm gonna lose it all. But does George Bailey lose everything in the end? He doesn't. When, he, when the chips are down, those relationships that he's shown brotherly love to come back for him. And eventually his brother comes in, everybody's singing Auld Lang Syne. And his brother comes in and says, George Bailey, my, my big brother, richest man in town. And he's laughing, he's singing, he looks down in that basket, uh, you know, and Clarence had left him a book. And inside that book, it said, a man is no failure who has friends. It's just almost like that movie is just announcing to us, friends, don't live like Potter. Don't, don't think that just the accumulation of wealth and gathering things is really what your life is about. Your life is the sum of the health of your relationships, starting with God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And spend the rest of your life learning what it means to love your neighbors yourself. To, be, to live in Philadelphia, a brotherly love for one another and putting other people first. After all, this is the example that Jesus has set for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today as we've studied your word, as we read these seemingly disconnected admonitions from Hebrews 13, the first several verses. Lord, we recognize that all of these are in one way or another a representation of how we worship you. Worship not singing a song, worship not meaning attendance to a religious service, but worship meaning the total life response of one's heart who has been converted by Christ, the response of our heart to give you everything. God, you own it all. You own my body, you own my life, you own my money, you own my house, even my children, God, don't belong to me. They belong to you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to honor you today in those things, that we would be good stewards, responsible managers of that which you've entrusted to us. And help us, Lord, to experience that, uh, unlike the world, that when we invest into the relationships in our life, be it God or our mate, our kids, our friends, our church family, that on the other side, we may not have the fanciest house on the block, I may not wear the fanciest clothes. I may not have a new car. But God, that you will find that we have life indeed, that we have life abundant through Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to love God and not gold. That we would love our Lord and not a lifestyle. God, give us the grace to live this out, Lord. We can't, everything we just read, we can't live this. We can't do this on our own. We need the transforming power of the gospel to change us and to transform our desires and help us to walk forward in faith, believing what we've read in your word, that it is truth and that it will lead to our best outcome. And God, if there are str anyone struggling with anything we've talked about today, God, whether it's immoral struggles, whether it's financial coveting struggles, whether it's struggles to love your neighbor, to love the hurting, 
God, I pray that you would break our hearts this morning and help our heart match the heart of our Lord, that we would be truly converted and transformed in him. We ask in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we just want to say thanks for spending time with us today. If you'd like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, let us give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people.